All right, thank you so much. And um, next we have Andrew Ryder, who's going to be presenting some work that myself and Lee have been involved in as well. So, so first, um, before I start, I'll take a. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll be able to see the PowerPoint. I'll take advantage of me being the last presenter on the last panel of the last day, um, and I think it's important that we thank the people who organize this, in particular, uh, Nikki and um, Francesca. And Emily, but is Emily probably running around doing something? Yes, um, which is which is typical. Uh, she's been doing a lot of that uh, over these last couple of days, so I think we should give them all a round of applause for. There are a whole lot of other OTJL people as well, so I'm yes. Coffee doesn't appear magically. People have to make sure it's there at the right time. Um, okay, so to start this, first I want to reiterate that this is a, a definitely a joint um, project and paper. Just it's easier for one person to present it, but uh, Trisha and Leo feel, feel free to chime in on the Q&A section as well, um, depending on if they feel a particular question they want to comment on. Uh, I want to go back to the very first panel on the first day and Nikki's opening comments. Um, she said she felt that OJTR and TJDB might be going in divergent directions methodologically, or it seems that they may have appeared to be doing that recently. Um, and so this is our approach um, in this latest stage of this Transitional Justice Database project to maybe come back together a little bit. Right? We started with the big end project early on, and now we're thinking, okay, what do we do with this large data? What do we do with these large findings? What do we, how do we follow up with them? And so this is going to be a, just a very preliminary first attempt to examine some of these larger trends that we found in the data in a little test region of Latin America to see what going more micro into those findings will reveal. Um, and so hopefully you can see us kind of doing this mixed methods approach during this presentation uh, and get a sense of where we, we see the project going further down the road. So. Uh, one big research question, sort of the, the, the theoretical question we're interested in, what explains the process uh, of overcoming self-amnesties and blanket amnesties uh, to allow for prosecutions of human rights violations? We know in many countries that we all study, they have amnesties and yet now they have trials. Or maybe they have both, amnesties and trials at the same time. All right, that was an interesting theoretical puzzle to us. We wanted to know what was going on there. Um, and then two sort of secondary questions. One uh, is methodological. What is the most effective way to study and understand these processes? And that's the tension between the large-end quantitative work and the more uh, small-end qualitative work. And, and that's something that's underlying all these choices. And then perhaps a normative question that's in the background. I don't know if I'll touch on it here too much, but uh, should these processes be supported? Uh, it goes back to some of these questions uh, Phil raised earlier about the tension between research uh, right, and advocacy. And so we have a particular finding from our research and then someone comes and says, hey, would you go and speak in our country to advocate for this mechanism, right? And, and what is our obligation? Oh, the savior, water. Uh, what is our obligation as researchers um, to do that or not do that? And particularly, I will say it's very controversial with a large end data set because we find large trends and it may be something in particular we find works overall, but it may not particularly be the best mechanism for that case, right? And so it might be a general finding that we have. It's, it's more difficult then to tailor that and to say that, yes, your case should do it, 
right? Or you should do it in your country. And so that's something that we've we've had to kind of wrestle with the last couple of years as we started being asked to speak in various countries about our research um, and how it might apply to, to country X, right, as we're doing this. So those three questions will be sort of uh, running behind all of this. So uh, just quickly, the, the, the reason we started on this amnesty uh, question, uh, this is our previous work, I won't put up any of the output tables or anything, but uh, in, in our original transitional justice database that, that Lee, Trisha, and I did uh, years ago, our first finding, uh, our big finding from our book project was that countries that use trials and amnesties following transitions to democracy seem to do better on human rights and democracy scores than countries who do one or the other or nothing. All right. Um, and that's controlling for all other factors, and our methodologist, Trisha, is happy to talk about uh, the modeling choices we use for that and, and how we statistically came to that conclusion. But to us, it was, it was an interesting finding and, and sort of paradoxical. We have trials and amnesties that are supposed to be in competition with each other, and yet countries that use both right after the transition end up doing better than countries who make other choices. And so that's where we started looking at this um, big pattern. Uh, and following that, in this, this most recent round uh, of data collection work, it's probably a little small, very small for all of you back there, uh, but if this is a breakdown of amnesty laws by region and by period, and then the far right column on both of the charts is challenges to those amnesty laws in those countries. That's some of the new data we've collected in this new, new round uh, of research. And so you can see, for instance, the top right in the light blue Latin America, uh, you see that it's had 28 amnesty laws, uh, and these are just in those transition countries that we're looking at. Uh, and uh, 280 challenges we have now, various types of, of legal um, and other civil society challenges to these amnesty laws that we've coded in this new round uh, of research. Uh, and, and so this is what we're really interested in, is we see this finding where amnesties and trials seem to work together, and yet we see these, these processes that appear to be happening in these countries where we have these amnesty laws and we have all these challenges to them, and somehow this meshes together and seems to quote-unquote work uh, for these big macro outcomes we're looking at of democracy and human rights. Uh, and so this is where we moved into this next phase of, of looking at this more mixed methods. Um, thinking about this large analysis identified this important combination that was intriguing to us, and now looking more qualitatively at these cases, we can then identify various subtypes of this combination, uh, and we can explore the process by which the combination actually works on the ground. Um, and so that's the next couple slides. Um, I will highlight some of these. So looking at Latin America, which you saw on the top right was the country that's had the most challenges and, and the most amnesties, too, if I recall, right? So we thought this would be a good test case. We also, all three of us happen to be Latin Americanists. So this is the country, the region we know best, just, yeah, luckily for us. Uh, so we looked at these countries in Latin America and tried to figure out, well, let's look at actually on the ground on what's happening. So a country used a trial, and a, truth, or a trial and an amnesty within its first few years after transition, but how did they use it? What order did they use it? Um, how have they interacted over time? How many trials have there been? Is it just one, that's sort of a token trial, or they've had many? Has the amnesty been completely overturned or, or, or partially? And so these are some of the categories we've come up with on this first attempt. Um, with Brazil and Nicaragua, we're talking about what we call obstinate amnesties, amnesties that are longstanding, and they basically block trials for the most part. Um, they've lasted much longer than I think we've anticipated, especially given the regional trend, um, and, and they're very what we typically think of with amnesties. State passes an amnesty that effectively blocks any prosecutions. In 
four cases we have where we're calling accountability impasse, and that amnesties exist, and there are some trials. So they haven't blocked them completely, but the trials we characterize as being very few, kind of showcase trials. They might be for a particular event that was maybe very you know, widely talked about on the news, and so the state dealt with that one but didn't do anything else. Uh, there's lots of variation in there in how they do this, but we wouldn't really say that these countries have overcome impunity. There are very, very few trials. Impunity is still what, what the amnesty is still what reigns in these cases. Okay. And then these three uh, final categories, we have one we were calling Panama pragmatic compatibility, and that amnesties are used with trials to essentially limit their impact. Um, there has been trial, there have been trials in Panama, um, but due to self-defense forces and other other actors who are afraid of too many prosecutions, and they decided, well, we don't want to go too far. We want to make sure we signal that we won't go too far. Right, so we'll use these sort of in conjunction with each other, so we're showing some accountability, but some protection, uh, and, and almost a break or a check on how much accountability there would be. With, uh, with Chile and Peru, and we have experts in the room on, on these countries, um, we've seen creative circumvention, where civil society actors, um, legal activists, have figured out loopholes in the amnesty that have allowed for some trials. The amnesty still exists. It's still in the books. It still protects some people from prosecution. But yet, we've seen a number of prosecutions in these countries, um, a, a, a fair number of prosecutions, a lot in some of these cases. And yet, there's still this amnesty, right? So it's been this creative way to get around it. And then finally, in, in Argentina and Uruguay, we're characterizing these as a democratic displacement, where amnesties are actually overturned and replaced by trials. So sort of a new way of dealing um, with the past. So uh, in looking more. Qualitatively, at these cases, we wanted to figure out what explains where these countries fall on the spectrum. Uh, and, and our findings so far, looking at the challenges, looking at civil society actors, is that uh, high demand for trials and weak resistance to trials leads to more trials, and the, the two big categories at the end that we're most interested in. Uh, and we have ways that we've actually tried to, act, to objectively measure uh, demand for trials and weak resistance to trials. Uh, within these cases, but the, that what's what explains these late trials we're often seeing in Latin America as well. That political and economic stability, they have stronger judiciaries now. There's more time to develop domestic movements to push for trials. Greater likelihood of international pressure. Militaries are weaker, and so we see this push that eventually leads to um, them being creatively circumvented or actually democratically displaced. Uh, so going back to the other two kind of questions, uh, what is the most effective way to study and understand these processes? Uh, we would have perhaps never really known to key on this combination hadn't, had we not done the big global study. Um, but then as you can see, as we've gotten into it in the case studies, we see that it's playing out very, very differently in all these cases, right? Something that we wouldn't catch with the big data set. Um, and so I, I think we're finding as we get into it that, that both types of methods um, have their, their uses and actually used together, they can be quite effective at picking up these large processes, general trends, but then actually figuring out, well, how is this process working on the ground and what does it look like practically on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, and then I think that should these processes be supported question is still kind of a, an open question um, uh, that we can talk about in the Q&A. Okay? All right. All right.